This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, in studio with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Bungard, as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Botswana's 2019 polls slated to be the toughest and most competitive elections the landlocked nation has seen yet. Various organizations expressed concern about the impact the Zambian Constitutional Amendment Bill 2019 may have on the independence of the judiciary. In economics, the African Development Bank identifies 14 sites for the proposed special agro-industrial processing zones in Nigeria. And lastly in sport, FAF Duplessis to captain South Africa in their three test matches in India in October. Right now, let's uh, kick it off with the news. Here is Eshwalani Tulo with your latest bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Two people have been killed and 24 remain missing after a militia attack overnight on a town in the volatile east of the DRC. Authorities say the assailants killed two transport workers, torched a goods truck and looted at least seven kiosks in the town of Kisima. Ten other people were killed at the weekend in the same region, which is a stronghold of the Allied Democratic Forces. It has been accused of killing several hundred civilians over the past three and a half years. South Africa's former communications minister, Faith Mutambi, has described as hogwash the public broadcaster report into alleged editorial interference in the decision-making in the SABC newsroom. Mutambi, who is apparently hospitalized, responded through a statement to the report, which was released on Monday by veteran journalist Joe Tlolwe. She had been fingered in the report as one of the people who gave instructions to SABC executives between 2012 and 2017, even though she had no Authority in the newsroom, Mercedes Percent reports. In a statement, Mutambi took a swipe at both the chairperson of the independent inquiry, Joe Sholwe, and another member of the inquiry, Stephen Tawana from Triple M Attorneys. She says, and I quote, Ordinarily, one would have expected people in these positions to have followed both their own code of conduct in carrying out this type of investigation. The two fundamentally failed as a long-practicing journalist and legal guru to adhere to the basic principles of natural justice, fairness and afford the affected parties the right to reply. The two failed the commission on its own terms of reference by not investigating the merits and veracity of the allegations against me. Closed quotes. Solwe says he will not respond to Mutambi's criticism against him. 
At least 1,800 people have been killed by malaria in Burundi this year. The figures were released by the United Nations Humanitarian Agency in a report. It says the death toll is rivaling a deadly Ebola outbreak in neighboring DRC. The report also states that 5.7 million cases of malaria have been recorded in Burundi this year, a figure roughly equal to the country's entire population. A lack of preventative measures like mosquito nets, climatic change and increased movements of people from mountain areas with low immunity to malaria were driving the crisis. Myanmar's foreign ministry has denounced a United Nations report that urged world leaders to cut ties with military-linked companies and impose an arms embargo over the Rohingya crisis. Myanmar says the move is intended to harm the country. A panel of UN experts have urged world leaders to impose targeted financial sanctions on companies linked to the military. In August 2017, more than 730,000 Rohingya members of a persecuted Muslim minority fled Myanmar's Rakhine state into neighboring Bangladesh amid a military-led crackdown. The investigations identified at least 59 foreign companies with commercial ties to the Myanmar military and 14 companies that have sold weapons and related equipment to security forces since 2016, including state-owned entities in Israel, India, North Korea and China. U.S. President Donald Trump has imposed sweeping sanctions on the Venezuelan government, freezing its assets in the U.S. and barring transactions with it. The move is the latest aimed at increasing pressure on Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro to step down. The U.S. is one of more than 50 nations that do not recognize Maduro as Venezuela's legitimate president. The BBC's Theo Leggett has the details. The new measures announced by the Trump administration go well beyond previous sanctions against Venezuela. The executive order imposes a complete ban on the sale or movement of any Venezuelan government assets in the United States. It also prohibits any transactions with the Venezuelan authorities, including those carried out by foreign businesses. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Botswana's 2019 polls may be the toughest and most competitive elections the landlocked nation has seen yet. The governing Botswana Democratic Party, BDP, has experienced significant decline in popular votes over the years, falling from 80% in 1965 to 47% in 2014. The BDP faces a tough battle to retain power in the face of fierce competition from a coalition of three parties under the umbrella for democratic change, as well as new parties, including the Botswana Patriotic Front. Itumeleng Khajani reports. Since coming to power in 1966, the BDP now faces its toughest election yet as the playing field for opposition parties widens. Although funding remains a challenge for opposition parties, commentators say some businesses are now funding the opposition campaigns. This enables these parties to reach more potential voters. The vice president of a new political party, the Alliance for Progressives, is Winter Muluzi. We are hoping for a win. Um, We are in this game to win. Uh, because we are doing everything in our interest and in our power to ensure that we cover all the corners of this country. We have produced one of the best manifestos that we are trying to sell to the nation and uh, we are very convinced right now that uh, Botswana, uh, you know, 
are listening to us. The BDP's greatest blow was losing the support of its former president Ian Kama to the newly formed Botswana Patriotic Front. The BPF says it is pinning its hopes on winning the central district, including Surowe, where Kama is a paramount chief. President of the BPF, B. Gibutale. The impression that the opposition is fractured is a perception. And in politics, uh, perceptions are reality. But I can assure you that we are in a strategic alliance with the opposition. I think we'll win power outright. But if there is a hung parliament, we will work with the UDC to form a new government. However, the BDP remains unshaken, as its Secretary General Mpobalopi explains. Right now, much as there is a new party uh, formed uh, from the BDP, remember there was a new party formed in 2014 from 2010, the BMD. But this is nothing compared to that. So as such, you don't see this thing as threats, mainly because most of them are very petty. Petty because the factual things and the hardcore things and the fundamental issues are discussed within the BDP. Political analyst Professor Zibani Maundeni says political dynamics have changed so much that the polls could favor just about any player. Historically, it shows that they, they have been going down. Uh, it was going to reach a point, we, we thought 2014 was the, 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 the meeting point where they would actually uh, stumble out of power. But somehow they, they, they managed to, 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 uh, to, ha- to hang in uh, with s- s- small, 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 small margin. But whether this time is the time for, for them to, to lose power, we, we don't know. For Botswana, these elections are the most significant in the nation's history. I believe Botswana we are ready for the upcoming elections. And um, if, I'll say if, if the, 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 upco- the, the new government can improve, can create more jobs, there, there, there are so many graduates out there who are, we are, not, who are not working at all. We are so like 100% ready to, um, to vote as Botswana. And we are expecting so much in terms of uh, youth empowerment. Botswana are expected to go to the polls in October. I meet you in Kajani in Gaborone, Botswana. Various organizations have expressed concern about the impact Zambian Constitutional Amendment Bill 2019 may have on the independence and impartiality of the judiciary if adopted. They say of particular concern are the amendments made to the disciplinary proceedings against judges and composition of the Supreme and Constitutional Courts. They have called upon the President of Zambia and the Zambian legislature to ensure that the proposed constitutional changes are in line with international human rights standards. More from Amanda Shivamba, Communications and Regional Advocacy Program Officer at the Southern Africa Litigation Centre. As you will know, Shansa, that there's been proposed amendments to the Zambian Constitution. And one of the main issues here is that when the, what happened is that in Zambia they put together a forum to uh, propose certain amendments to the Constitution, but it was called the National Dialogue Forum. But the reasons behind some of these amendments, uh, the intention behind them, we are just not founded. For instance, um, you will see that initially the current constitution proposed for the Judicial Complaints Commission to review any complaints against judges, whereas now the amendments have stated that what would happen is that the president would appoint a tribunal. 
And with this, we ask ourselves the question as to why would they make that change? Also, you find that with the tribunal, um, we are unsure, the constitution doesn't state, as to where the members of this tribunal would come from. Could they come from the executive? Could they also come from the judiciary? And then the issue of separation of powers comes into play. And um, this can cause uh, huge concerns within the government if the tribunal that is put in place to remove the judge is in fact elected by the president himself. We see that the executive would have control over um, which judges are in place and which aren't, which is very detrimental to the judiciary. Now, the bill has since been released for public comment. Have you and the various organizations that have raised these concerns that you've just alluded to informed the authorities in Zambia about some of the concerns that you have? Um, Definitely. You'll see that there has been quite a lot of uh, public outcry with regards to these proposed amendments. Um, from the law society itself who put out a statement, from other civil society organizations, um, and of course from us as SOC being a regional organization, we have put out policy briefs, one on national assembly oversight over public debt. We have put out a policy brief on um, issues around the judiciary, and then of course the statement that you referred to uh, earlier that we put together with other international organizations. and. Um, We are just hoping that all of these combined efforts are noted by the government and by the policymakers in Zambia. So what then is your appeal to authorities in Zambia with regards to this bill? I think there are, there's a number of appeals. Um, When it comes to issues around the judiciary, our uh, appeal is for the authorities to look to international principles around judicial independence. Um, For instance, you've got the basic principles on the independence of the judiciary by the OHCHR. We've got the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. And uh, these are all principles that Zambia has to look to in terms of international best practice. And so we really appeal to them that even when wanting to make any of these amendments in relation to the judiciary or National Assembly oversight or or any other amendment that will affect the, the country as a whole, that they do look to international best practice and that even now the outcry from civil society that is currently being made, that the lawmakers take note of that because civil society is not just making these outcries for the sake of. It is because we know and understand the impact that these types of amendments will have on the citizens as a whole, on the fiscus of the country, on the view of the international community on Zambia as a country. And so the, the outcry is just for them to take these suggestions, the proposals, the, all of this, they take it into consideration. That was Amanda Shivamba from the Southern Africa Litigation Center on the line talking to Ntlantla Mashango. The time is 17.14 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that 
discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. More than 100 migrants from Togo, Burkina Faso, Nigeria and Benin are stranded in Cameroon after they were rescued by the Central African State's military from their capsizing vessel in the Atlantic Ocean. The migrants who are calling on their government to help say they do not have food or money. Moki Kinzega reports from Eboje in southern Cameroon. 117 men, women and children lie on the bare floor at the government school in Eboje, a Cameroon village on the west coast of Africa near the Atlantic Ocean. Christian Jongo, village chief of Eboje, says officials have been looking after the unexpected visitors. On les a recueillis comme des de poissons parce que lorsque la barque a eu ce choc he says on July 29, his community joined the Cameroon military to save the lives of the migrants from the sea. He says immediately after removing them from their vessel that was almost capsizing, the community gave them clothing, coffee and food. He says townspeople are now hoping for assistance from the government because they no longer have food for the stranded migrants. They say the vessel, nicknamed Ave Maria, left Ghana for Gabon and Equatorial Guinea and had on board 65 people from Burkina Faso, 41 from Togo, a man from Nigeria, three people from Benin and seven crew members from Ghana. There were 43 women and 24 children. The vessel ran out of fuel at sea in Cameroon territorial waters and was rescued after several hours by the rapid intervention battalion of Cameroon's military and fishermen. Witnesses said some migrants dove into the sea in an attempt to swim to safety and were rescued by local fishermen. No deaths were reported, but since the ordeal, the vessel's crew is requesting additional payment from passengers to refuel the boat and most of the migrants say they can't pay. 27-year-old Burkina Bay migrant Ali Rashid says he was struggling to find his way to Spain through Equatorial Guinea. 
pour facilement arriver en Espagne, il faut passer par le, la Guinée équatoriale parce que la Guinée équatoriale parle. He says it is easier to travel to Spain through Equatorial Guinea because the Central African state enjoys good diplomatic relations with its former colonial master and the two countries have Spanish as their official language. He says from Spain he has dreams of traveling to any other European country. Qui sont très bonnes pour celui qui voudrait par exemple partir en Espagne, il ferait mieux de passer par le, la Guinée équatoriale. 32-year-old Benin migrant Raoul Amadi says he left Ghana for Gabon, where he was told by a relative who had been there for five months that he could get a job as an electrician. He says after observing the difficult conditions they went through at sea, he now wants to return home. Amadi says he no longer wants to continue with the vessel and is pleading with his government to help him and his peers to return home. My woman and my child is home. I want to go back home to Ghana. When this boy captured here, yeah, I have been looking after them, taking care of them. By the grace of God, they are all fine. Leonie Leguda, a resident of Eboji, says since the migrants arrived in her village, life has become more difficult. Their presence here is a nuisance to the whole community. They are harvesting our crops and stealing our fowls and goods. They should leave now. Most of the migrants had no travel documents, but were identified through national identity cards. Some of the travelers want to return to their countries of origin, while others want to go to Ghana. Cameroon's military says it has opened an investigation. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Eboji, a Cameroon village on the west coast of Africa. The international non-profit organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has added its voice to calls for donors to help close the funding gap in the Democratic Republic of Congo's Ebola response. This comes as experts warn that funding shortages could further cripple the already strained response unless the global community steps up quickly. MSF has been responding to the outbreak since it was declared a year ago. More than 1,800 people have died over the last 12 months in the 10th outbreak the country has faced in the last four decades. More from Monica Genya, Associate Manager for MSF. MSF has been in DRC, as you know, for decades, and uh, we were there when Ebola was first declared a year ago. And we were focusing on opening Ebola treatment centers, supporting the MOH with training, vaccination of healthcare workers, and health promotion and contact tracing. That's what we've been focusing our response on. Now, a year into the outbreak, is the situation far worse and troubling on the ground than what the numbers reflect? We believe so. Recorded cases are at their highest levels. We were last month looking at 80, between 80 and 100 new cases each week in July. Those are the highest levels that have been recorded in the past year. So we believe that the situation is far worse than what it appears. What do you think the greatest danger is at the moment? Could we be heading to the same situation we saw a few years back in West Africa where over 11,000 people died of Ebola? 
Yes, I think that the greatest danger, we believe the greatest danger is lack of trust from the communities where we're working and insecurity in those communities. We believe that we need to do much more work in educating communities as to how they can help us with their response. And we hope that the situation is not heading to where it was in West Africa. Nobody wants to see that again. And we're hopeful because we have an investigational vaccine that we've been using and we're working with the authorities, the MOH, to allow us the use of a second investigational vaccine. How best can this trust gap between communities and response teams be bridged in your view? Yes, we think that uh, the best way to go about it is to support health centers. So we're not, as healthcare workers, seen as only interested in Ebola, which is viewed with a lot of suspicion. But if they uh, view us as people who've come there, and we have come there, to support the healthcare of all patients, uh, regardless of whether they're suffering from Ebola or not. So supporting the healthcare centers, boosting their capacity to be able to triage and to respond, not just to Ebola, but to other uh, diseases. And uh, then these centers can refer potential Ebola patients early and we can be able to place people under treatment as soon as possible. As MSF, how are you engaging communities about the virus given the misinformation on Ebola that continues to spread? Yes, we're working very hard. We live among our communities, among uh, patients of our communities. We're talking to them, disassociating ourselves from politics because at the moment the distrust seems to be centered around politics in the region. And as you know, MSF is non-political, non-governmental. So we're trying to engage with them to, to let them know that there is no way we can uh, adequately respond without their help. We're doing a lot of health promotion. We're doing a lot of contact tracing. And we're trying to keep this community safe. Before I let you go, is the lack of enough funding taking any toll on the already strained response in any way? Uh, definitely. As you know, the response has been going on for a year. It's not getting better. And we have to keep the funding going in order to be able to contain the spread of the disease. And we would ask people to go to our website, www.msf.org.za, to see how they can support our work. Or SMS join, J-O-I-N, to 42110 in order to give a quick donation if they wish to. And that was Monica Kenya, Associate Manager for Doctors Without Borders, MSF, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Meanwhile, Uganda has started a trial of an experimental Ebola vaccine that may be used in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. The trial of the MVABN vaccine has been developed by Johnson & Johnson and is expected to last two years. Studies have indicated that only 7% of South African children are secured in car seats when traveling in a vehicle, resulting in 1,000 of horrific deaths every single year. This is according to Debbie Bilson, Operations Director for uh, MaxiCosi, an international company that produces and sells baby car seats, who says that despite being law that every child under the age of three be secured, securely strapped into a car seat, a shocking 93 of motorists, taxi services and bus services flaunt this law, which is not effectively enforced by local and national police. More on child passenger safety from Debbie Bilson. Child Passenger Safety Week is an international week that they run to create awareness for children's car safety. Um, so Mexico has taken initiative from last year to run this in South Africa um, over the month of September to just to create an awareness for parents that children should be strapped in because a very small percentage of kids are strapped in um, in South Africa and there are no laws that enforce 
children to be stressed into car seats over the age of three years. The problem that we experience at the moment is that the majority of kids that are killed in car accidents are generally between the age of five and 12. And that's when parents tend to think that their kids don't need to be in car seats any longer. So currently in South Africa, the, the regulation is that all children must be strapped in a car seat from a newborn until three years. But after that, there's no regulation in South Africa which enforces the law that children should actually be in a car seat until 1.35 metres, which is the average 12-year-old child. Child Passenger Safety Week runs internationally from the 9th to the 16th of September, as you said. And at, yes, yeah, Mexico Z, um want to get people talking about the importance of our children's safety in motor vehicles in South Africa. How are you aiming to achieve that? We, we just want to create awareness. So as much as people, we can just talk to people to encourage parents to put their children in car seats is what we're trying to create. So we're trying to go through different platforms, get companies on board with us just to create that awareness out there that children must be in a car seat. It's their right to be in a car seat. And I think it's a parent's responsibility that if you own a vehicle, that you must take the ownership of also purchasing a child restraint system within your vehicle to protect your child in the unlikely event of a car accident. Now talk to us about the importance of our children's safety in motor vehicles. Why is it so important? Yeah, so a lot of parents will give us the question, you know, why, how long must my child stay in a car seat? Or after the age of four, they go, oh, well, then they're going to school. It's time uh, they don't need to sit in a car seat anymore. But you must understand that things are very different today as they were 20 or 30 years ago. So we are, there are many more cars on the road. There are also cars going at faster speeds than before. And then we also have the dynamics of taxis on the road, where people also are not abiding to the laws of the road. So there are a lot more accidents on the road than there were before. And parents just need to be aware of that, no matter how far you are or what distance you're going to be traveling. At no time do you know exactly when a car will be jumping a robot or that you'll be involved in a car accident. 45% of accidents today are from the side, and this is purely from people skipping robots or stop streets. It's not necessarily just the long-distance travel that you're going to be doing that there's more danger of a car accident, but actually just going around the corner to your local supermarket to buy your local um, bread and milk every day, where you could be involved in quite a serious accident. And what are some of the safety tips you would like to share with parents out there to ensure that they are using their car seats as effectively and safely as possible? Okay, so I just want to create the awareness out there that parents please put your children in a car um, seat. It doesn't have to be uh, an isofix seat necessarily, or it can be a seat-belted uh, car seat. They're just as safe. But the crucial things that parents must know is that car seats go through stringent testing before they're on the market. And when you're installing a car seat with, an, with a seatbelt, you must ensure that you've 
installed that seat that car seat correctly with the seatbelt. Because if you haven't installed it properly with the seatbelt, you can't expect that car seat to perform at optimum level in the event of a car accident. And they need to understand that when they're testing car seats with the seatbelt, in order for it to pass a certain regulation to be sold on the market, they are installed properly. But if a parent doesn't install that car seat properly with the seatbelt, you can't expect that car seat to perform at optimum level. That's why some parents might ask the question, is Isofix car seat safer than a non-Isofix car seat? No, it not necessarily is, but there's less risk of incorrect installation. We did a little survey where we invited a whole lot of parents around and the one and we entertained them for the afternoon with their with their children, but the one prerequisite was that they had to leave their cars open. And we went around testing cars and looking at the car seats that were installed in their car. And 70% of the car seats that were installed in their vehicles with seatbelts were incorrectly installed. And this is quite a high statistic and quite scary because parents are thinking that, oh, well, my child is in a car seat, but yet they're installed incorrectly. And in, as I said, in the event of a car accident, this could be detrimental. That was Debbie Bilson, Operations Director for Maxi Kosi, on the line talking to Lebuchang Mabange. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here are your latest headlines. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulong making headlines. Two people have been killed and 24 remain missing after a militia attack overnight on a town in the volatile east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. South Africa's former communications minister Faith Mutambi has described as hogwash the public broadcaster report into alleged editorial interference in decision making in the SABC newsroom. And finally, Myanmar's foreign ministry has denounced a United Nations report that urged world leaders to cut ties with military linked companies and impose an arms embargo over the Rohingya crisis. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tudor. This is Africa Digest. The South African Law Reform Commission is calling on South Africans to make their views heard on Project 144, Issue Paper 35, dealing with the question of the possible adoption of a single marriage state. Uh, the commission will investigate, initiate and stimulate debate, seek proposals for reform and will serve as a basis for further deliberation by the commission in the form of consultations leading to a discussion paper. More from a Principal State Law Advisor, Pierre van Veek. We got a request from the Department of Home Affairs to investigate the possibility of the adoption of a single or omnibus marriage uh, statute that would also cater for unmarried intimate relationships. And one of the questions which the issue paper raises is, should South Africa continue with different regulatory regimes for different forms of marriages. For, as you will know, we have our Marriage Act, which dates back to uh, 1961. Then we have the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act of 1998. And then we have the Civil Union Act 
of 2006. There were initiatives also with the Muslim Marriages Bill and um, then also a plea to regulate Hindu marriages. So the question will be, what do the South African public think? How should we go about doing this? Do they see a single set of requirements applying to everyone throughout? Or would an Omnibus Act entail different set of requirements still applying to different groups, and they, but then in different chapters in the same Act? So, and what we are saying is we're starting off this debate with this issue paper. We are saying it's the first document which we have now published. It aims to announce the investigation. It initiates and stimulates debate. It seeks proposals for reform and will serve as a basis for further deliberation by the Commission in the form of consultations and then leading to a discussion paper does not contain any proposals law reform at this stage. It only identifies what we thought are issues which should be addressed at this stage. How will this now work out? What are the steps that you are going to follow? And are people welcome to come in and suggest what they think would work? How is this going to roll out? I'm glad you asked. We are saying this is a journey which we can't walk alone. This journey should be traveled with us by everyone because relationships, most people are in relationships and this investigation will look into how do we regulate our relationships. So as I say, this is now the first step was the publication of the issue paper. Respondents will respond to us We will host workshops throughout the country. That will lead into the development of a discussion paper. The discussion paper will again be published for comment, will again workshop the proposal set out in the discussion paper. That will then result into a final report, and hopefully by, say, December 2021, we will have finalized a report. But... At this stage, we want to ensure that everyone is on board, that they are aware that we are conducting this investigation, that we identified the scope of the investigation correctly. So therefore, we are asking everyone out there to consider our issue paper. And the issue paper, it's very easy to find. If someone types in, if someone Googles, SALRC issue paper 35, and they may even add single marriage statute. I don't think that's even necessary, but the SALRC issue paper 35 will take them to our issue paper, which is posted on our website. What we've also done, we've consolidated the questions which are in the issue paper into a questionnaire and translated the questionnaire into eight languages. I'm not familiar with with the other languages, but some of my colleagues are. It will make it easier if we receive the comment in English, but if it's easier for our respondents to comment to us in Zulu or Benda or Sutu, whatever the case might be, then they are more than welcome to do so. 
and tell us where they think we should go. And because it's in South Africa, will this consider the African uh, customs? Because there's always been arguments about how some of the laws in the country are not actually recognizing the African customs. Now, indeed, it will definitely. If one looks at our neighbors, Zimbabwe, for example, introduced the Consolidated Marriage Bill two weeks ago. So we will closely follow developments in in Zimbabwe. And speaking of Zimbabwe, it has taken the lead as regards the minimum age for marriage, for there was in January 2016 a case heard by the Constitutional Court. It's called Mutsuru and another versus Ministry of Justice, Legal and Parliamentary Affairs and others. And what it said is that it's unconstitutional to allow minors to get married. Further issues that we, further developments we will also take into account, for example, is exactly the same reasoning, the same decision was reached in Tanzania where it was held that it's unconstitutional to allow minors to get married. And talking about Africa, we need to take heed of the local or the regional instruments such as the the African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child that dates back to 1990, which said that specific action must be taken to specify the minimum age of marriage to be 18 years. And that's Sandy So Sibisi. Who was the founder of South African-based Women and Girls Development Agency, born to succeed women on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. My apologies about that. That was actually Pierre van Veek, Principal State Law Advisor at the South African Law Reform Commission, on the line talking to Tutongobeni. Moving on to the conversation with Lulu Gabu, along with other partners, the South African-based development agency Born to Succeed Women will host a national dialogue on Women's Day, which is observed on the 9th of August. Taking place in Santon, Johannesburg, the dialogue is focusing on the advancement of women and girls. The event seeks to gather youth from all parts of the country between the ages of 16 and uh, 35 to engage on issues of concern. For more on this issue, here's the founder of Born to Succeed, Sandy Sosuisi. So we established Born to Succeed in 2013, and it was in response to the high youth unemployment rate, and we um, helped a lot of young girls actually get access to the marketplace. So we placed a couple of girls in various organizations, in, in areas of the call center, um, in areas of IT, um, and then we stretched our work a bit further, and we moved on to agriculture as well, um, giving girls awareness to the different sectors that they can be part of. Since then, we um, also established some presence in Durban as well, so we're primarily focused on in Gauteng at first year, then we established ourselves in Durban, and then we did lots of work around gender-based violence. We saw it as an issue that girls were facing, um, whether they were unemployed or employed, and um, that, that's primarily why we founded it, I'd say, is just to um, empower young women and give them access to markets. Let's speak about the upcoming National Dialogue on Women's Day, which is uh, this coming Friday. Tell us about the, the agenda and uh, what you're hoping to achieve. So the conversation to be held on Friday 
We're very much um, was developed um, or founded by UN Women United Nations Women. So last year I was selected to be a young representative from South Africa to represent the country in the various conversations held in Nairobi or pertaining to UN Women um, events. Um, I was there and then this year they asked us to come back again and now to provide input towards their Beijing Plus 25 declaration. The Beijing Plus 25 declaration speaks to 12 key areas that, that are critical to women, women advancement. So it's, it's things like women in media, women in health, it's women decision-making, it's, it's, it's all these different topics that affect women. And so what we're doing on um, the Friday is actually trying to unpack those 12 critical areas. So we're going to have various speakers. So it will be addressed by head of APSA Group HR, so Rose Phillips. It'll be Lundlem Gingu, who's the head of um, IT at Cecil. And then our keynote will be given by Beatrice Motala, who's the head of UNFPA, which is the population agency for the UN. And then we're going to have three panels. Uh, panel. This is a panels that are selected from just young people and also uh, people that are not so youth anymore that have worked in this gender space and that have you know, done work and enhanced and advanced in this gender space. The first conversation is around advancement of girls. The second one is around women and the economy. And the last one is more around gender-based violence, women in conflict areas, um, etc. So it's going to be a very robust day with lots of conversations. And it's talking about how far we've come, have we moved forward or have we not moved forward in terms of advancing, advancing women and girls. Burning issues that you're going to be starting off with that uh, you know affect women locally and uh, internationally. Mm, that's true. That's true. So we have a couple of um, foreign women as well joining us um, from the UN perspective, and also just other leaders that have worked, also lawyers as well. It's really a, a time to just really reflect on how far we've come as women. And the conversation is not just the first few one side from the panel end, but rather one it to be a conversation. So as we're organizing, we're trying to find ways of how we can get the people and the audience to actually have a voice in the conversation and let's gather our minds and understand how far we've come and also what we still need to do going forward. How do people um, become a part of uh, you know these conversations that you're going to be having? Is it too late to get involved, or um, you know is there a way of becoming a part of this uh, conversation, so to speak? So the applications close today, and we say application because um, we actually need to motivate us why you need to attend. So it is a free event, um, but we want people to identify them to tell us and explain to us why they need to be there. That's the first part. That was Sandy Sosibisi, founder of a South African-based women and girls development agency born to succeed women on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. Let's cross on over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgod. Thank you, Samora. Tanzanian President John Magufuli has told delegates at the 4th Southern African Development Community Industrialization Week and Exhibition underway in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, that there is an urgent need to do away with hurdles that are hampering trade among SADC countries. Data shows that intra-African trade stands at only 20% of the continent's total trade with the rest of the world. 
Tanzania exports minerals such as tanzanite and gold, as well as tea, coffee, cigarettes, cement and towels to other SADC member states, and its imports include vehicles, seeds, lubricants and sugar from countries such as South Africa, Zambia, Mauritius and Malawi. Malawi's mobile phone giant TNM has announced that it is cutting 137 jobs as part of restructuring efforts. The company says the retrenchment follows changes in the telecommunications industry. From the 137 jobs, 45 employees volunteered to leave. Malawi Congress of Trade Unions says it's disappointed by the job cuts. TNM says it will continue to deliver outstanding services. South Africa's retail fuel sector is ready to face the future and address concerns over the negative effects that fossil fuels have on the environment. This is the view of the director of PetroConnect founder, Sabelo Mbata. He was addressing retail industry experts and leaders in the country's coastal town of Durban. The sector is also concerned about fluctuating fuel prices and the coming of the fourth industrial revolution. Mbata says petrol station owners in the retail fuel sector continue to generate an income despite concerns that petrol and diesel have a negative impact on the environment. There are growing calls that governments must stop using fossil fuels and start introducing environmentally friendly energy and electric power vehicles. Mbata says retail fuel sellers will continue to make profits for the next 15 to 20 years. This industry is not about to die in any time soon, certainly not in our lifetime. Um, Because back in the days, service stations were about fuel. But if you look at the the innovation that's that's coming in, uh, it is becoming, um, it's like a mall, but it's a mini mall, right? This is where everybody who needs anything would come. They come to a service station now going forward. So it's not just about petrol. So even if we had cars that needs to be charged and we do away with petrol, which is not about to happen in our lifetime, by the way. The Egyptian government has increased its revenues from ships traveling through the Suez Canal. It is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world and a main source of foreign currency for the Egyptian government. The canal almost halves the distance traveled by ships and generates revenue of almost $6 billion. Korean car maker Hyundai has released a version of its Sonata Hybrid with solar panels on its roof to help charge its battery. Hyundai says it plans to offer the roof as an optional extra on other models in its range. The automaker says fitting the panels will boost fuel efficiency and lower carbon dioxide emissions. Hyundai is working on a second-generation solar roof that will be semi-transparent to help light the car's cabin. The solar roof-equipped Sonata will be on sale in North America and Korea, and the company has no plans to sell it in other regions. The price for the passenger car fitted with a solar roof has not yet been given. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.39 Nigeria Naira, 10.73 Botswana Pula at 101.87 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.88 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.91 Brazilian Hale, 65.26 Russian Ruble, 70.61 Indian Rupee, 7.08 Chinese Yuan and at 14.88 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,464 and platinum at $855 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $60.20 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for the sport. Here's Netochimani. Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. Cricket South Africa CSA Chief Executive Tabang Morowe has lauded Proteus first bowler daily stain for his contribution following the 36-year-old's retirement from Test Cricket with immediate defect. The Palabora Express ended a sterling 14-year Test career in which he became South Africa's leading Test wicket-taker with 439 sticks to his name. Morowe says they have welcomed Stain's decision. What can you say besides that he's a legend? He's a living legend um, and uh, he's going to be sorely missed um, as far as the test arena is concerned but has taken a pretty wise and bold decision at that in in, in trying to prolong his career at international level. Uh, We fully support him as management of Cricket South Africa. Obviously um, one can say that the news to me came as a surprise. I thought maybe he might want to wait a little bit longer, uh, play you know the test series against uh, England uh, where essentially he started his um, uh, career against from an opposition point of view. Former Proteus coach Corey Fanzeile, who is now acting CSA Director of Cricket, echoed Morua's words on the legend, who has played 93 tests for the Proteus. With the 2020 World T20 Cup in India also on the horizon, Fanzeile adds that they are happy to have him available for selection for the one-day internationals and T20s. As Tabanga said, I mean, a legend in his own right. He's not, uh, you know, the leading to a wicket taker in, in South Africa for, for no reason. He had a special skill in, in speed, accuracy and swing, which um, is ingredients for success at international level, you know, and that's why he's gone to to uh, 439 wickets, I think, if I'm not mistaken. We understand why he's making this decision. He still wants to play for South Africa. He, did, he seriously wanted to play for South African Test cricket, but he's trying to preserve his career as long as possible, see how he can get to the T20 World Cup and play a part there. So we, are, we appreciate that, and we're happy that you know we can still retain him as a contracted player in this 1920 season while he's trying to manage his, uh, his workload to the T20 World Cup, you know, if selected. Fanzeile adds that the stain's impact on youngsters such as Kahisorabada and Lungingidi has been immeasurable as he leaves the team in a good space in the fast bowling department. Obviously the players themselves will speak for the, the impact that he's had on them. You can only but deduce that he's had a major impact. You know, you can see when when he's on the field the impact he has on the on the team and and the and the bowling unit. Um, so that is an aspect of his experience that's gonna be sorely missed. So uh, we thank him for that. 
In football news, the South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns are chattering a plane to take them into the heart of the Congo later this week as they prepare to begin a bid to add another CAF Champions League star to their badge. It will cost hundreds of thousands of rands, but there is little alternative if Sundowns are to avoid a bone-jerring, energy-sapping and mentally frustrating journey to Owando, which lies on the Kuyo River right in the middle of the country. It is there that they will meet a Yes, Otoho Di Oyo in the first leg of their first round tie as the new competition gets underway this weekend. The domestic league champions will leave late on Thursday, stopping first in the capital of Brazzaville to clear customs and then fly another 500 kilometers north to Oyo where they will stay. And finally, in athletics news, Australia's Olympic 2012 gold medalist and reigning world champion Hadla Sally Pearson has retired from has retired owing to persistent injuries. It means Pearson, who won 100 meters hurdles gold in London, will not defend her world title in Doha in October. She says six injuries in the past year mean she has major doubts her body will be able to continue to cope. Twelve months before the Tokyo Olympics. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Well, that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Uh, for myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producers Fiso Mashikho, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Sabela Bainzika. We'll see you again at 1900 hours Central African time. Summer.